Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Those of you who have been coming with us, uh, coming and joining us for worship over the last several weeks and now months, know that we are making our way through the gospel according to Mark, which is the earliest of the four gospels. Uh, It was written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses of Jesus. That means it was falsifiable. Uh, If people thought that the things communicated in the gospel of Mark were legends, they literally could have found people on the street that were alive when the events recorded occurred and asked them, did you see this? Did this happen? Uh, Mark was a close associate of Peter, and so in many ways the Gospel of Mark is the memoirs of Peter, uh, one of not just Jesus' twelve disciples, but part of his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And this morning we're coming to the end of chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 in the passage that we just heard read. Before I give you the the sermon points, I'm going to give you a main idea sentence, and if I'm doing this correctly, the main idea of the message will be the main idea of the passage. This is what I think is the main idea of these five brief verses. Jesus is on the scene to establish a family that transcends and will outlast every earthly bond. Jesus is on the scene to establish a family that transcends and will outlast every earthly bond. The three points which I think arise out of these verses are Jesus reimagines the family of God, Jesus keys in on the will of God, and Jesus previews the church of God. Jesus reimagines God's family, he keys in on God's will, and he previews God's church. First, Jesus reimagines the family of God. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Now, this is Not the first time we've encountered Jesus' family. If you remember from the previous passage, which we looked at last week, they showed up there in Mark 3, verses 20 and 21. Look again at those verses, 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. So what Mark is doing with this literary technique is something like a a split screen. So in verses 20 and 21, you have the the focus on the family. We realize that they're, they're coming after him to fetch him because they think he's out of his mind and he's an embarrassment to them. But then it's like Mark hits pause on that scene and then switches over to 
what we looked at most of the time last week was this interaction with the Pharisees in which Jesus throws down the gauntlet and uh, we talked about the unforgivable sin. And then now Mark is done with that and he's pushing you know, the pause button again to resume the tape on what's going on with Jesus's family. And when they arrive, it seems, you know, they've come several miles, probably in a huff, uh, to, to retrieve him. And when they arrive, it is utter pandemonium. It's mayhem. It's standing room only. The crowds are pressing in on the door. And so the family, they can't even walk up to Jesus. They have to dispatch someone to worm their way through the crowd and give this message to Jesus. Hey, your family's outside. Party's over, buddy. Time to go home. So the message finally makes its way into the house. Verse 32, a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. In this moment, I imagine that all of the noise just kind of died down and people expected Jesus as a good rabbi in a family-centered Jewish culture to say, to appropriately say, I'm very sorry, it's been a good time, but I have to leave. And and you know what the response would have been to that if Jesus had said, I'm sorry, I've got to go? If you think the response would have been booing, then that's evidence of your cultural location. (laughs) Only an individualistic, modern, Western person would think the response to that would have been booing. No, the the response would have been, of course you need to go. You're you're a good Jew. You're a good rabbi. You're a righteous man. Your family comes first. We'll, We'll catch you tomorrow. As much as people were enjoying the spectacle, they would have had no category for Jesus flouting this cultural norm. This was a culture in which family reigned supreme in, in a person's priorities. If, if, if your life was like a meal, your family was not just a side dish that you could you know, partake of or not if you felt like it. Your, your family was like the main course around, every, around which everything else, including your religion, orbited. You, you couldn't really disentangle your loyalty to God from your loyalty to your family in a Jewish household. It wasn't meant to be that way. In so many ways, you were your family. You were your family. They they were your identity. Mom, dad, siblings, they were your life. And so Jesus' response is a bombshell. Verse 33, who are my mothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked what? That's, that would have been, people would have said, you know, come again, what did you say? And then verse 34, he just keeps going. Then Mark says, he looked at those seated in a circle around him. And the word there for looked at is not the word for like a passing glance. It's the word that's used in the Bible for an authoritative survey. Think of like a wedding, you know, if it, If anyone objects to this sacred union, speak now or forever hold your peace. And the way that the the minister kind of just pauses and 
scans the room. This is the way Jesus was looking around, this kind of authoritative survey. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, that is, his disciples, and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So this point is titled, Jesus reimagines the family of God. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Covenant, membership in God's family was based on bloodline. You were born into the religion. You were born into Judaism. Yes, there were other ways to join the community of Israel, but fundamentally, it was a matter. Participation, membership in the family of God, in the people of God, in the community of God was a matter of genealogy. And Jesus here is making the claim, the stunning claim, that that era of salvation history, which had lasted for thousands of years, is coming to an end. Because he has arrived to bring a new order, a new covenant, a new community in which membership will not be based on genealogy, but re-genealogy. That is, regeneration. We, we saw a hint of this a couple weeks ago, if you recall, when Jesus summoned to himself on the mountain how many apostles? Twelve apostles, and we thought about how that was significant because it was Jesus reconstituting the people of God around himself, the twelve tribes giving way to twelve apostles as the nucleus of God's long-planned pilot project of the new creation that is coming to earth in human hearts. Two passages in the Old Testament that I want to show you, not just quote to you, but I want you to actually look at them because they're load-bearing Old Testament passages that anticipate this changing reality. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Can't really give you advice on how to find it other than that you may want to use the table of contents. Uh, Ezekiel 36. The prophet is forecasting a coming day. This is hundreds of years before the, before the arrival of Jesus. And the prophet Ezekiel is forecasting a future day. And he says this, Ezekiel 36, starting in uh, verse 24. The Lord is speaking. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. The most basic unit in the old covenant was the family. 
But, but that's not always going to be the case. The other passage I want to show you is in Jeremiah 31. I want you to actually turn there. Uh, it's the, it's the, the book of the Bible immediately before Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31. We heard a portion of it read earlier in the service. But I want to start a few verses before what's printed in your service guide. Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 29. Verses 29 and 30 are rarely referenced, rarely quoted. We often start with verse 31. Uh, and I, I can't cast blame because I decided to start with verse 31 in the service guide. But 29 and 30 are important, especially as we think about this uh, change that is forthcoming in the people of God, specifically the family of God. Look at verses 29 and 30. In those days, that is in this future era of salvation history, in those days, people will no longer say, and then uh, there, there's a, Jeremiah quotes a proverb, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. To be set on edge is, is, a, is a metaphor for uh, being irritated. So in other words, the days are coming when people are not going to say what's true of the parent is true of the child. Verse 30, instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. See that change? And then he fleshes it out. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Same exact phraseology as we just saw in Ezekiel 36. Verse 34, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. On the back of your service guide, you'll, you'll notice that uh, it mentions our Sunday evening prayer service tonight, and in parentheses, there's a Bible verse, and it says Jeremiah 31, 34. That's because that's the verse that's going to be in, the, that's going to, we're going to reflect on in the, in the evening devotional together. Uh, just kind of an FYI, uh, Zane mentioned that the Sunday evening service is not a mere repeat of the morning service. Virtually everything we do in the evening service is different. We do sing songs to the Lord, which is the same, but the, most of the time we spend hearing prayer requests from one another, actually praying for one another, and hearing a brief 15-minute devotional from God's Word that's never preached by me. It's always from another brother in the church. And tonight, Grant Thigpen is going to reflect with us, uh, help us reflect more on applications from Jeremiah 31, 34. So natural ties are not the only bonds in the world. 
nor are they the most lasting ones. That's what these prophecies in Ezekiel and Jeremiah are previewing, that natural ties are not the only bonds in the world, nor are they the most lasting ones. Jesus reimagines the family of God. Number two, Jesus keys in on the will of God. Jesus keys in on the will of God. Look again at verse 35. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, on first glance, this can seem like he's saying that the way you enter God's house and become a member of God's family is through good works. Doesn't it kind of look like that? If you do God's will, then you can become part of God's family. But friends, this is why it's so important to read our Bibles carefully. Look again. Jesus does not say, whoever does God's will becomes my brother and sister and mother. No, he says, whoever does God's will is. Currently. Already. In other words, obedience to God is not the ground of being accepted and welcomed into God's family. It is the evidence. A member of Christ's family will be characterized by doing God's will. And notice, this is another subtle moment in which Jesus has the audacity to speak on behalf of God. We talked about this last week. If you have concluded that Jesus is nothing more than a good moral teacher, no offense, but you're not a very good listener because he claimed things about himself that were so audacious that that option of him merely being a wonderful teacher of love and peace is off the table. And here's another reason why. He has the audacity to speak on behalf of God. And it's not even explicit. Sometimes it's just kind of implicit. Here's an example. Notice he doesn't say, whoever does God's will is God's family member. That's what we would expect grammatically, right? Whoever does the will of God is part of God's family. Or we would expect him to say, whoever does my will is part of my family. But he says, whoever does God's will is part of my family. And in verse 29, if you remember from last week, he claimed to be anointed and empowered and rightly identified with the Holy Spirit. And here he says, I speak for the Father. For those with ears to hear, this is a whisper. For those with eyes to see, this is a little flicker of what will become a blaze in the new, on the pages of the New Testament of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, we still haven't answered the question here. What does it mean to do God's will? What does it mean to do God's will? I mean, that, that's a pressing question. We, we want to know the will of God for our lives. Well, at the broadest level, we could say it's doing everything the Bible prescribes of Christians. Zooming in a bit more, we could quote the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and say that the will of God is doing, obeying everything he has commanded us. 
which again, by the way, shows that Jesus shares divine status with the Father because to obey Jesus is to obey God. But what about in the immediate context of Mark? What does it mean to do the will of God? What so far, we have to ask, has been presented as the will of God? Well, fundamentally, the will of God in Mark is obeying chapter 1, verse 14. Remember that? Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. Fundamentally, the will of God in Mark is that we recognize that God's eternal kingdom has made a personal appearance on earth in the person of Jesus and that we rightly and appropriately respond by repenting and believing in the gospel. The gospel. If if you don't know what that word means, that's the most important thing that you can pick up and take home from this sermon, is that we Christians believe that all of us are born outsiders in the family of God. It is a misnomer. It is unhelpful to talk as if every human is a child of God. Now, in the broadest sense, All of God's creatures can be said to be his children, but biblically, that's on pretty shaky ground. According to the Bible, we are not born children of God. We are born enemies of God because of our sin. And the whole wonder of the gospel is that the Father has come to the orphanage, to the prison, and has, you know, opened the doors and has rushed in and has flipped on the lights and has carried us out. And the wonder of the gospel is not merely that we are, through trusting in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in our place, not merely that we are pronounced righteous in God's courtroom, though that's true. And if you've never turned and trusted in Christ, that can happen to you right now in your seat. If you put your trust in Christ, then immediately, it's not a process, it's a moment, immediately you can be made right with a holy God. No longer guilty in his sight. Innocent. But you know that's not even the greatest wonder of the gospel. The greatest wonder of the gospel is that the judge doesn't just acquit you in the courtroom. He welcomes you into the living room. In other words, the, the, the proceedings in, the, in heaven's courtroom change from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. And you get to come home with the judge and know him not as your judge, but know him as your father. If you want to know more about what that looks like, to repent and believe in the gospel and be welcomed, not just into the throne room of the king, but into the living room, as it were, of the father of the universe, then talk to someone here. There's nothing more we would like to explain than how you can be made right and welcomed home today. But of course, doing God's will is not limited to repenting and believing. It also involves living wisely in God's world according to God's word. Christian, are you characterized by doing God's will? I mean, Mark, Mark doesn't have a lot of time for nuance. He's, he's kind of in a rush as he writes his gospel. It's the briefest of the four gospels. 
Of course, there's a place for nuance, but could your life be described in shorthand as that person does God's will? A member of God's family is not someone who obeys him perfectly, but it is someone who obeys him consistently, whose whole life is marked by repenting and believing and obeying, repenting and believing and obeying, repenting and believing and obeying over and over and over again until the day you won't have anything left to repent of because you are in the presence of God. Think about it like the difference between a snapshot of your life and a movie reel of your life. When you think of the question, do you do God's will? Well, if there were to just be a random snapshot of your life, there's a very good chance it would catch you not doing God's will. I mean, I'd be pretty scared if someone was going to judge my entire life based on a random snapshot that they took. But our lives are, are, are viewed not on the basis of a snapshot here or there, but on the basis of, of, of a movie reel where even our stumblings and our failings and our sinning is within the larger context of repenting, believing, obeying. So the question is not, what do the snapshots look like? The most important question is, what, what does the whole movie reel look like? It's important to take your spiritual temperature every now and then. 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul says, Exam examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Not whether you were in the faith. His question is not, did you ever pray a prayer raise a hand, walk an aisle, sign a card, throw a pine cone into a fire at a summer camp. No, it's examine yourselves to see whether you are present tense in the faith. It's important to take your spiritual temperature, but can I just give you two super brief tips? One, don't take your spiritual temperature over the course of hours and days. Take it over the course of months and years. Don't take your spiritual temperature over the course of hours and days, so much as you take it over the course of months and years. And number two, don't do it alone. Don't take it alone. Take your spiritual temperature, or to use the language of scripture, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith in the context of a covenant family. More on that to come. One more thing about the will of God here, because it's just something we, we often are, um, are mindful of, sometimes even obsessed about, is, is how, what is the will of God for my life? When we think of the will of God, I think we often focus, and by we, I, I, I mean Christians, we, we often tend to focus on questions like, okay, will of God, will of God, should I live in Richmond or D.C.? Should I stay in this job or should I take that job? Should I marry this godly person or that godly person? And those aren't bad questions. Of course, those things matter. But you know, we may be most concerned about questions like that. God is most concerned about a different question. God is most concerned about what kind of person you're becoming. What kind of person would be living in Richmond or D.C.? 
What kind of a person would be in this job or that? Would be married to this godly spouse or that godly spouse? Those questions, again, they matter, and you should pray for wisdom. God loves to give wisdom. He will give clarity. Doesn't mean he'll give certainty. He often doesn't give certainty on questions like that. But he'll give you wisdom. He'll give you clarity as you prayerfully weigh your options in consultation with elders and trusted friends. But don't forget that those questions are downstream from the bigger question of what is God's will for your life? You know the Bible answers that question explicitly in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4 3. Paul explicitly says, this is the will of God for your life, colon, your sanctification. That's God's will for your life, your growth in holiness, your being conformed progressively, increasingly to the character and image and likeness of Jesus. Jesus reimagines the family of God. Jesus here keys in on the will of God. And third, Jesus previews the church of God. Where is the family of God visible on earth today? It's not very spectacular. It's pretty ordinary. It's in local churches like ours. This is where the family of God shows up in the world. You know, the local church is the only institution that Jesus founded when he was on earth. He didn't found a university or a school or a political uh, establishment, but he founded a church and he gave it an invincible guarantee. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The reason I use the word in the title of this point, previews, it's because we're not there quite yet, are we? I mean, Mark 3 is still pretty early on in the earthly ministry of Jesus. But in making this bombshell statement, Jesus is forecasting something that his death and resurrection will secure. In due time, his death and resurrection are going to secure a, not just a new covenant community in general, but specific congregations that function as families in particular. Looking at the whole of the New Testament, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that to belong to Christ's family is to belong to his church. Believer, if you are not meaningfully connected to, committed to a local church, you are missing out on God's discipleship plan for your life. This is not just a pastor trying to convince you to join a church the way a small business owner would try to convince you to buy his product or whatever. No, no, I, I'm, I'm speaking on God's behalf right now. You are missing out. I say this to you in love. You don't have to join RCBC, but you, if you claim to be a Christian, have to formally commit to some local church that preaches the gospel because the New Testament knows nothing of a churchless Christian. That is an oxymoron, according to the pages of the Bible. 
So we come now to the great tension of this little story at the end of Mark 3. The tension of natural family versus spiritual family. It's family of origin versus family of God. And the uncomfortable, perhaps unpreferred truth that Jesus is communicating is that your membership in his family transcends your commitment even to those with whom you've lived under the same roof for decades. Now, don't mishear Jesus. It's easy to encounter this story in isolation and to think, my lands, he was callous and unfeeling to kind of tell his family off like this. But again, we we need to zoom out and get the whole picture. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus first of all, had always prioritized his relationship with his heavenly father. This wasn't new. At the age of 12, he was left behind in the temple in Jerusalem. And when his family showed up, he says, why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But the flip side is that two verses later, it says, then Jesus went down to Nazareth with them and was what? Obedient to them. Obedient them. Jesus will go on, even in the gospel of Mark, to denounce Pharisees for disregarding the fifth commandment, to honor father and mother. And in his final moments on the cross, as he was suffocating to death, he had the wherewithal and the concern to make provisions for his own mother that she would be cared for. John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took Mary into his home. So we would be mishearing and misapplying the words of Jesus to conclude that our earthly families just kind of don't matter in the kingdom of God. But... But they are not ultimate. And sometimes obedience to the Lord will look like disobedience to family. I mean, what's going on here in Mark 3 is more than just, hey, Jesus, come home for dinner. It's more like, hey, Jesus, come back home to being a carpenter. Whether they realized it or not, his family was trying to derail his mission. So his reaction here, his refusal to defer to them, if you think about it, it was ultimately an act of love. It was ultimately for their eternal good. And as we saw last week, many of them would come to believe that he was the Son of God. I think applying this passage, which is just rich with implications for life together as a church, I think applying this passage will mean at least four things for RCBC. Four things for RCBC. First, we will be a church. It'll mean, if we interpret it, apply it rightly, we will be a church that prays often for one another. I guess the question that that jumps out at me is, do you pray for your spiritual family just as consistently 
and desperately as you pray for your natural family. You know, we have some tools to help you succeed in this area. But we have a membership directory, which is a great way to not only familiarize yourself with the names and the faces of your covenant siblings here at the church that, that you've made promises to, but also to pray for them and to let them know you have. Another way to kind of warm the engine of your heart in this direction is what I said earlier. Come pray with your church on Sunday evenings. We meet every other week, including tonight at 5 p.m. This is not a gathering for super spiritual people who just can't bear the thought of only being in church once on a Sunday. This is a gathering, rather, for spiritually desperate people who know that they need not only the Lord, but one another, who understand that they have the privilege of lifting their collective voice to the God who hears and cares about all of our needs. And speaking of needs, coming on Sunday evenings to the prayer service is probably the best way that you can become aware of needs in the church. Yes, I'm aware that home groups exist. I think coming on Sunday evening consistently will be a better way of staying dialed in to the needs of your whole church family than even your involvement in home group. We will be a church that prays often for one another. Number two, we will be a church that champions godly singleness. Godly singleness. You know, as a Christian, uh, especially, especially for Christians, singleness can be isolating and lonely. Some churches are set up not so much as the family of God, but as a family of families. It's good to have families in a church, but some, some churches are built as a family of families, such that if you don't have a family, you feel like you're incomplete, deficient. We don't want to do that at RCBC. You know, the psalmist in Psalm 68, 6 says that God sets the lonely in families, and that's not just households, but I pray that would also be new in this new covenant age, a church like RCBC, that God would set the lonely in the family of RCBC. I pray that the Lord would place lonely believers here and that we would be a refuge and a haven for them. I'm not trying to imply that all sing single Christians are lonely. I'm just trying to say, let's have eyes for them to make sure they're not. Our world, if you haven't noticed, conflates intimacy and sex, saying you can't have one without the other. In other words, it, it reduces intimacy to sex. There's no such thing as intimacy without sex. But you know, Scripture absolutely reject, rejects that dichotomy. God's people gathered in kingdom outposts called local churches are meant to be the most intimate communities on earth. Sam Albury observes, quote, for those of us who remain single, and by the way, he has an excellent, this, is, this quote is taken from his excellent book, Seven Myths About Singleness. Sam Albury, Seven Myths About Singleness. Quote, for those of us who remain single, 
we might not experience the unique depth of intimacy with one person that a married friend might, but we can enjoy a unique breadth of intimacy with a number of close friends that comes from having greater opportunity and capacity than married people typically do to invest in close friendships. In other words, the world champions the single life because of all you can do for yourself. The Bible champions the single life because of all you can do for others. Single brothers and sisters among us, you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You are not on the JV squad at River City Baptist Church. Your worth and identity and completeness as a person is not tied to your marital status. If singleness is deficient, if singleness is deficient, then so was Jesus Christ. Number three, we will be a church that prizes meaningful membership. We will be a church that prizes meaningful membership. My friend Sam Amadi observes that in Christian bookstores, do you guys remember those? A couple weeks ago, I referenced a phone book. This is up there with a phone book. There used to be these things called bookstores, and some were Christian. Uh, not everything in it was Christian, unfortunately, but mostly Christian bookstores. You would walk in, and there would be uh, multiple sections, and you would see a section titled Christian Living, and another section titled Church. According to the Bible, those are one section. There is no distinction. The Bible knows nothing of the Christian life that is not also the churched life or the churched life that is not the Christian life. As I said earlier, if you're a visitor with us, we would love for you to, and you're a believer in Christ, we'd love for you to pursue membership here at RCBC, but what's more important is that you pursue membership somewhere, somewhere where you're going to be held accountable by elders and fellow members. If not here, go elsewhere to a place where you can join and flourish as a Christian in a covenant family. We would rather you, for your spiritual good, go elsewhere and actually commit than stay here and merely attend. Because the most important thing is not how many numbers we can amass on a Sunday to feel good about ourselves. It's how you are doing spiritually. And the best thing for you spiritually is going to be formal commitment to a local church. Number four, we will be a church that makes sacrifices the world doesn't understand. We will be a church that makes sacrifices the world doesn't understand. The home is one of God's sweetest gifts, isn't it? But just like with other things in life, it, it can, if we're not careful, be given a promotion it doesn't deserve. It's possible for a home to become, slowly but surely, a temple. The family, its only members, with sacrifices only being made for those within its four walls. Could it be? that if your commitments to your natural family, however noble they may seem, if those commitments are limiting your involvement at church, if they're preventing your ability to be meaningfully committed to your spiritual family, could it be that your priorities are misplaced? I mean, 
Christian families will do things, will make decisions, will operate on the basis of a calculus that doesn't make sense to the watching world. Very practically, parents, there will be travel teams we don't participate in because they would keep us and our kids from worshiping with our church family on Sundays. I know that's easy to say from a pulpit. It's harder in reality, given the way kids' sports are these days. I have an athletic little boy, and I'm going to feel the probably sting of this in, in years to come. But the reality is Sundays must be a fixture, an immovable fixture in the life of a Christian family. And church must not bow to travel sports. Travel sports must bow to church. There will be things that we as families don't buy because we're diverting the money to help see the gospel spread around Richmond and to the ends of the earth, even among people who have never heard the name of Jesus. There will be vacations that we schedule with Sundays in mind. Now, this is not something we're going to police at RCBC. It's fine to miss a Sunday here and there. But why not, when you're scheduling trips, see if you can possibly leave on a Monday or come back on a Saturday so that you can gather with your church family on Sunday? Again, the world doesn't understand this way of thinking. This is what it means to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to belittle the cost or the sting of any one of these decisions. They are inconvenient, perhaps unpreferred. That's why I call them sacrifices, because they are. They demand things of us that might be hard to give up. But this is what the Christian life is all about. And it is not just a sacrifice, brothers and sisters. It is a privilege and a joy to organize our lives around the people of God and the mission of God. I just want to say, as the pastor here of, of this young church, that when I reflect on these four exhortations, these, these implications of the priority and the ultimacy of our spiritual family, that I really don't convey them this morning as a correction. If anything, they're a commendation. I mean, in our short life together as a church, you all have made it such a joy to be your pastor. And you know the biggest way you've done that? The biggest way that you've flooded my heart with encouragement and gladness is just in getting to watch you take responsibility for one another, prioritize one another, organize your lives around one another. So this is in some ways a, a groundwork laying message, a flag planting message, a culture shaping message, but in other ways I, I feel like we have been given by God's sheer kindness a running start in some of these ways. And I just want to commend you as your pastor and say, well done. Do not grow weary in doing good. Well, for some of you, it's, you hear the, the message of 
Mark 3, 31 to 35, you, you feel its, its pinch, its challenge, because you come from healthy and vibrant and happy family situations. But you know, to Mark's Roman audience, many of whom were suffering for their newfound faith in the Roman Empire, many of whom would have lost friendships, perhaps even family members. Perhaps they would have been disowned for their new allegiance to this so-called king, Jesus. These words, this truth would have been a balm and a comfort. And perhaps they are to you as well. If your family situation is a source not so much of joy but of pain. But whether Jesus' words this morning are more of a challenge to you or a comfort to you, they are good for you. They're good for your soul, and they ought to lift your eyes to what can happen in the life of a church that is cemented together by the promises of the gospel and by the commitments of meaningful church membership. The author, Jen Wilkin, and a reflection on the fifth commandment to honor father and mother writes this quote because the church is the family of god we need be at no loss for fathers and mothers to honor nor need we be at a loss for spiritual orphans to parent if your family of origin was a painful one the family of god can be a haven and a recompense if your family of origin was a happy one, how much more so the family of God? You know, I think the most amazing word in our passage might come right there at the end of verse 34. It shows up twice. Look again there. It's the word my. My. Jesus says, here are my family members. He, he's not begrudgingly affiliating himself with them. He's not embarrassed to say this. He is gladly and proudly owning these people as his own. And if you know anything about them, if you know anything about these disciples who will go on to doubt him and disappoint him and betray him and deny him, if you know anything about yourself, then you will know these are amazing words that Jesus so happily identifies with us. I, I think of Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, which, which reads, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that is, Jesus and us, are of the same family. So, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We, the family of Jesus, have no reason to be ashamed of him, do we? And yet so often we are. Meanwhile, Jesus has every reason to be ashamed of us. But he's not. Even when we're ashamed of belonging to him, even when we're ashamed of ourselves because of our sin, he is never ashamed of embracing us identifying with us, owning us as his own. Let's rest afresh this morning, brothers and sisters, in the wonder of gospel grace 
and in the comfort and consolation of this new covenant family that he has created. A family which transcends and will outlast every earthly bond. Let's pray. 